I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured on Celluloid. On this week's episode, we are talking about the concert films of David Byrne. Uh, Primarily, his new film, American Utopia, and another that is widely regarded as one of the all-time great documentaries, maybe the greatest concert film ever made, and that is the Talking Heads concert film, Stop Making Sense. Andrew, first and foremost, it's check-in time. How are you doing? Uh, I'm well, Adam. There is nothing going on that could distract us from this conversation. The world is, at the moment, a pretty boring place, especially on my side of the Atlantic Ocean. So, Talking Heads is really the the only thing on my mind. Talking Heads, David Byrne, concert films, and just the joy of music and artistic expression on stage. So, that's the only thing occupying my thoughts. When I was re-watching Stop Making Sense earlier, I was struck by one particular element. Not the, not the costume choice that most people you know, initially think of when Stop Making Sense is brought up, but another choice that David Byrne makes during that performance. Do you know which one I'm alluding to? Um, is it related to hair and or portable cassette players? No, it's not. It's related to, he puts on this red hat <laughs> that is a certain kind of red hat, and he's his whole fashion, this is, I think he's wearing the big suit, but he's taking the jacket off. But there is still that kind of shape to his trousers, and I couldn't help but look at it and be like, is there someone notable, uh, maybe in the news sometimes, who took inspiration from David Byrne's fashion in Stop Making Sense? Yeah, I think um, there are a few people that come to mind, but one in particular. It's like, you should always look like you put on a cardboard box before you put on your suit that's when you when you know you're you're really looking good so david byrne was a fashion icon from that sense influencing athletes and politicians alike with his sartorial splendor we'll call it yeah bold choices um and bold choices to pay off and that is very much the story of these two movies and you know, one of them is only very recently out, so maybe it's a bit on the early side for this, but I feel very strongly about it, and it seems like a lot of critics do too. I, I think we're talking about two all-timers here, like two absolutely defining concert films, two defining documentaries. And this is a particularly interesting genre in terms of really how uninteresting it can often be how undynamic, how there can be very little thought that goes into how it's shot, and it just becomes, let's get a company who will put some cameras there and record our concert, and we will just cut from one to the other to the other. There's no greater thought about any thematic content behind the show, about how it translates to camera as opposed to being performed on stage, to really any of the considerations that should be essential when it comes to oh so you've decided to make a movie why and i think in that regard david byrne is fascinating he's a favorite character of really a lot of hardcore movie fans 
and because beyond what anyone might think of his music in its own right he has this thing where he has now worked with two of the best american filmmakers of the last you know 40 years or so and made really incredible works that both capture his and talking heads essence as musical acts but also kind of find a way to convey wider ideas and have bigger conversations and also create something that is just interesting as a movie are you kind of on the same wavelength with that i know like i could speak for both of us on this and that we both discovered stop making sense only earlier this year was something i've wanted to watch for a long time and early on in all of the the chaos and wonders of 2020 and um the lockdown elements i settled in and i watched stop making sense and i was just blown away and i remember kind of letting you know in particular as someone who i know deeply loves music deeply loves the live music experience that hey maybe it's a good idea you watch this because this can give you something uh in particular i know we both enjoyed it so then to have a spike lee directed not quite concert. I mean, I've called it a concert film. American Utopia is a recording of the the Broadway show that David Byrne has had on for, I believe, the last couple of years. But that was a real bonus in what has not been a year with a lot of good news. But what is your true, those, those two films in particular, what is it about David Byrne that translates to cinema or that he gets that makes these you know just not the old run of the mill oh artist x or band y have recorded their film and it's there and it's only really something that the hardcore fans of that particular person are going to watch i think it it really just is the thought that he puts into everything that he does and you were speaking about me not having the live music experience during lockdown pandemic. So from stop making sense, I get that aspect of it. And even if it was just a run of the mill concert film, I still think I would be able to take away that emotion and that joy from it. But this is just so much more. I mean, there's another concert film that comes to mind by another band. I really love that. We were talking about offline the dance by Fleetwood Mac, but it's just kind of run of the mill. It's Fleetwood Mac playing a concert. The, the art and the craft that goes into this is is just mind blowing, and I think you you feel that from the get go. As soon as David Byrne and Stop Making Sense walks out onto the stage with a portable cassette player and basically plays a, a drum machine acoustic guitar version of Psycho Killer, where he's almost entranced by the music and gyrating and tripping all over himself as as the beats of the music go on, you start to realize this isn't this isn't a concert. It's it's a true performance, and the the boldness of that really does translate to film. Because if you just film someone playing a show, that that's really not the same thing. And so I get that full concert experience that I've been missing from Stop Making Sense. And on the other hand, American Utopia ties it all together and brings you that Broadway stage performance. I'm, Stop Making Sense is much more of a quote unquote concert. And in American Utopia, it just takes it to another level and it becomes entirely performance art. And it, he he takes what he did and Stop Making Sense and takes it to an entirely different level for something that works on the stage and then somehow works in, on film. Sometimes filmed 
uh, stage performances don't translate to film, but something about what David Byrne does, the bold decisions, the creativity, it, it really just translates to the home viewing experience, even probably more so than being there live in, in the case of Stop Making Sense. There's something about the way it shot, the meticulous time they spent over, what was it, four or five nights to get every angle captured and then edit together like a true masterpiece and visual experience. I can think of one example. I can't remember what the song was, but there was just an intense amount of focus on Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt who do backing vocals. And if you're at a live show, you don't get that real focus on one part of the performance. You might be locked in on David Byrne the whole time or Tina Weymouth kind of dancing with her bass, but the attention and care that every single member of this band gets just goes back to that entire idea of craft and thought. And I think it just really works uh, for film. Yeah. I think there's something really, really interesting about that particular element. And I was thinking about it a lot today in rewatching both, both films. I mean, I only watched American Utopia for the first time, like whatever it was two weeks ago when it first aired on HBO, but there's something so unusual about that choice about how in both films from two different directors that just how willing the camera is to wander away from Byrne, even though he is one of the most just magnetic presences you'll ever find. Like he is in terms of performers that it's like hard to take your eyes off that person. He is right up there near the top of that list. And interestingly, in both of these films, the camera frequently moves away from him and takes in the wider ensemble in a way that I really, really love. And in American Utopia in particular, I found by the end, like, you know every performer's face. Like, you you see them pop up. You know every performer's face. You're kind of, you're getting a sense of their personalities through the show, which is just a real achievement. It's kind of... Look, it's not like we're watching a whole ton of concert films and more importantly, generally, they're not made with this kind of taught at this level of craft where you'd get that kind of effect. But the fact that that comes across in both films, I think it's kind of impossible to avoid tying that to a decision that David Byrne has made himself, which is I mean, it's particularly interesting when you, you think it stopped making sense and you go back to Talking Heads and you go back to... I mean, really what his reputation was. I mean, there are two kind of, two public figure instances of Byrne. There's the figure he's become in the past 20, 25 years, which is very Mr. Rogers-like. And I think never was that more apparent to me than when he showed up in uh, John Mulaney's The Sock Lunch Bunch. And is great in that, but just the way he drops in there and particularly the whole vibe of that particular and the, and the ideas at play in that particular project, that particular special, you're kind of going, this is really, you know, this is who he is now. Didn't he also, obviously not last weekend when Mulaney hosted SNL, but last year Mulaney hosted it and he was the musical guest. Am I right in remembering that? It was literally like a week or two before shutdown started happening. So it was March. Okay, well, yeah, it feels like a long time ago. Yeah, again, he was incredible on that. He he now brings such a kind of focused 
joyous energy to things that really kind of rubs against what his public persona was earlier in his career and what his reputation still from that time can be, whether it's anecdotes coming from his bandmates um, or just, a, I guess, a wider idea of him being very odd, <laughs> unusual, which I think he is, often being quite distant, not being someone who was very accessible, um, both in a literal sense, but also in terms of just kind of engaging with him. But then the the flip side of that too is in both of these films, there's this strange kind of openness that is very much rooted in this idea of collaboration and the collective. And one of the most interesting things, I think, about Byrne, when you think about his wider career and like if you were to flick through his discography, it's just, it's constant collaboration. It's like different artists from different countries, different backgrounds, different genres of music. Um, could be a full album. It could be that he just kind of co-writes and does a guest vocal on something. Like this is certainly post-Talking Heads. It's interesting. He left the band, which is the idea of, you know, the ultimate collaborative uh experience or form in music and since he's done that he's continued to just seek out and successfully find other ways to collaborate and maybe to do so in a fashion that is healthier and happier for him possibly i don't know there's certainly some contradictions at play in terms of how we got from stop making sense david Byrne, to how we got to american utopia david Byrne. But I, I do think the true line between the two and this idea of how kind of open and inclusive the films are in terms of wanting to create that feeling, which it's also, I mean, there's something very, very cool. I know you have had this experience at live shows when you go and see uh, whether it's a solo artist or it's a band and they just have like a lot of people on stage, right? <laughs> they are a whole ensemble. I could think of like maybe the most obvious example of all of this is Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band. Um, I could think of, say, going to see Arcade Fire, and you could be like, oh, there's like 15 people on stage. There is something quite cool about that as an experience. But even when you're when you're at a show for one of those kind of acts, your eye is still drawn to more often than not, you know, Bruce Springsteen or Win Butler. And you're not getting the chance to just kind of fully scan your eyes around. Um, if if there's big screens, you're, you're not necessarily seeing constantly all the other members of the band. So I find that element of it particularly interesting, given some of the challenges he had and certainly some of the stories that are out there that don't suggest he was always the easiest person to deal with or be in a band with back in the back in the 80s. Yeah, it's interesting. And I agree with everything you're saying about both what we've heard about him from former bandmates and just the general public perception, and that there is a warmness and an openness to both of these films. I think it really comes into play in Stop Making Sense and that it's a shared experience and it's a collaboration between him, the band, the audience, and then I guess the the crew making the film. It's, it's a collaboration and a shared experience between everyone. It's not just about David Byrne. And I think that's highlighted really nicely. Now (laughs) you could look at this the other way as well. Uh, The film does start with him solo by himself with his guitar and his tape player. And we hear other music coming from backstage. And I think 
maybe light backing vocals when we get to the chorus of Psycho Killer. But then slowly, as they continue down the set list, more and more band members are brought onto the stage until it's just this fully formed raucous party. And I think that gives everyone their moment to kind of make their interest entrance. And I think that that's really cool and really highlights the collaboration. When you extend to American Utopia, it's uh, similar in that he's sort of alone in the beginning and then, and then everyone comes in and joins him. But the thing that stands out from American Utopia that's different from Stop Making Sense, the sense of collaboration is still there. It's still about that. But also, because it kind of turns into a one-man show at some points or, or uh, a chance for him to, to give monologues on his thoughts about the world and current events, there's just such a warmness and an empathy to the things that he's talking about and the philosophies that he's espousing that it takes it to an entirely different level. And like you say, it, it does totally go against the kind of figure or that was drawn early in his career and, and talking back or going back to the talking heads days. And he, he now is that warm Mr. Rogers figure so that when he's in SNL with John Mulaney doing a bit about the LaGuardia airport sushi <laughs> right before COVID hit uh, and performing kind of a, a weird version of road to nowhere uh, with airport puns mixed in. I mean, it's just such a transformation and I, I really, I really love how both these films are connected, but how American Utopia takes something that was so brilliant and unique at the time and still manages to do something different and make it its own thing, but still definitely linked to the to the first film yeah and there's kind of there's interesting dynamics at play too where let's say for example to start making sense this is a, this is a prime example of where you said you know this could be taken both ways when you consider even some of the things that i i feel like i read earlier than this year i think chris franz had like an autobiography or a memoir come out and there were of course plenty of anecdotes from back when they toured and the kind of the wave of, I guess, people interrogating the relationship and talking about it came up. And there was obviously this tension from, you know, the point of when Byrne started to make some stuff solo and then the Tom Tom Club, same sort of time, started up and you, you had France and you had Tina Weymouth doing their thing. And yet, like, there's something like there's something quite strange in that I don't think a lot of artists or bands would do this that within their their show, but not just in their show, within like their concert film, you have this moment where, oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. And this side project of two of the other band members, they could play their song and a really great song, a pretty big hit at that as in genius of love that's kind of striking and at the same time the flip side of it is that was just you know exactly what was needed to allow Bert to go off stage and change into his iconic giant suit so is that purely a selfish decision or is that a a sign of you know the same kind of openness and collaborative spirit that I guess we still see to this day and we talk about even more in that regard with him. And the other thing I then think about is when it comes to American Utopia, like there's so much, what looks like really genuine, good feeling and warmth on the stage. Not dissimilar to stop making sense. It must be said, like you wouldn't get the feeling in either that 
this is David Byrne on stage with people who dislike him. But I do wonder, is it easier for him now and it, is it easier for his bandmates to, you know, just essentially they're, they're all for hire, you know? They're a band for hire. They're performing songs that were written by Byrne and the Talking Heads, Byrne Solo, uh, Byrne and countless other contributors over the years. It's not like they're all in and they're invested in the process of, well, we made this, like, songwriting credits and how they were broken down is famously one of the, the really kind of divisive elements in Talking Heads. It was when Byrne would get solo credit for something and the rest of the band would feel like they contributed, um, which they may have, they may not. I have no idea. But there is that element to it with that removed when it just becomes about performance, which is really the point he has got to, you know, the collaboration, it happens in other areas where it's probably easier for him to let go. Like, for as much as David Byrne's dancing is iconic, he can kind of take his foot off the gas on that front and be like, okay, yeah, uh, I trust you to work through the choreography. I'll be involved in it, but I trust you to do this or... You get you get what I mean there. I don't know if that's a play, but I I in watching the two and particularly in watching them back to back today, and I actually watched them in reverse order. I watched American Utopia first and then stopped making sense, which maybe fueled this even more because I was looking at who he is now, who we all kind of know of and think of now, and then put back to that place and started to think of okay, well, some of the details I've read about, I've heard about over the years from that previous era. There's a there's an interesting disconnect there. Maybe he's just matured. Maybe he's just become a kinder, gentler spirit as he got older. Maybe, you know, certainly it's not like he's ever disappeared off the face of the earth, but his profile at the peak of Talking Heads was very different to what it has been for the majority of the time since Talking Heads broke up. In, that's in spite of now being the kind of person who, yeah, will pop up on SNL and whatever else. Yeah, I think it could be a lot of theories in determining how exactly things have changed for him. And I think a lot of it's probably true to a degree. I think the interesting thing about American Utopia is that I agree this is more about what's happening on the stage than what's happening behind the scenes. We, we probably have even less insight into what his creative creative process is like for American Utopia. But when they're on the, their stage together, it's just about having that shared moment between everyone. And I think that that really does shine through. So the structure of that, where it's, it's really David Byrne and an ensemble piece rather than a band really does lend to, uh, better collaboration, better feelings, and that that true sense of uh, that everyone on the stage is enjoying each other's company and enjoying what they're doing. And what's on the stage is more important than what's happening off the stage. The things that are being said, the performances that are being given, and uh, yeah, I, so I would agree with you. There's probably a, a, a lot of degrees of uh, or a lot of elements that that make up what the difference between David Byrne and 1984 is and 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Let's cross over into the specific films and kind of get into some of the details. Um, Stop making sense.
yourself, what is that beautiful house? You may ask yourself, where does that highway lead to? You may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? You may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? So Stop Making Sense was released in 1984, really just before Talking Heads stopped touring for good. It was a number of years before they actually broke up. They recorded, I believe, one more album, uh, but it was kind of just before they finished up touring. And it was directed by you know, all-time great director, Jonathan Demme, known for the likes of Silence of the Lambs. Certainly best though for Sans Lambs, but even plenty of kind of much beloved films before and after that. Uh, Philadelphia is one certainly that uh, was very much celebrated at the time. Melvin and Howard is a film that has a really kind of glowing reputation. And I do believe Melvin and Howard was was the movie that David Byrne thinking about this. He saw that movie that made him aware of who Jonathan Demme was uh, true mutual friends they ended up being put in touch and then over the course of four nights in los angeles they recorded what became stop making sense and it's kind of unlike anything i've ever seen not just in terms of a concert film but i haven't seen anyone try to recreate this particular concept as a as a concert, as a stage show, have you? I mean, you're a, you're probably uh, you are. There's no probably about it. You are a more frequent concert goer than I am. Um, your probably all time concert total is up in pretty gaudy numbers. I would guess. Have you ever seen someone kind of, I don't know, try to deconstruct the concert or do something quite as interesting and as ambitious as Burn and Talking Heads do in this instance? I really haven't. Um, I've I've seen a few people who will deconstruct a concert in terms of like having multiple sets, and we're going to be on a stage here, and we're going to be on a stage there. But that's all pretty bl- basic and, and pretty bland. I mean, that's that's run of the mill. That's not what this is. I I haven't seen the the infusion of this is kind of a performance while we're also running through a set list of our hits. I, I really have never seen anything like that. The only thing uh, that comes close is not because it was something thought out or conceived. It's because they were literally playing, paying tribute to talking heads. And that's uh, the 1975 um, who 
basically uh, kind of the the jogging in place uh, nature of what Burn and the backup dancers in, in one of the songs on Stop Making Sense. I can't remember which one exactly. They have an element of their live show where they'll basically recreate that and a song called It's Not Living If It's Not With You. And they also have a, a music video um, where he, he based the lead singer, Maddie Healy. I know you hate this band, basically dreams he's da- David Byrne. So the oh old- my god, really? Yes, he does. Uh, you didn't make this up? No, that's the thing that happens. Uh, I need uh, to check this out. Yeah, so that's the only way I've seen like that kind of thing worked into a show. Honestly, I don't know if it's because of the types of performances I'm going to, but for example, another band that I think draws heavily on Talking Head influences in a band I really love, who most people know because of the lead singer, uh, Jack Antonoff, does a lot of production for like Lana Del Rey and Taylor Swift, and he's basically... Uh, an incredibly uh, prolific pop producer now is a band called Bleachers. And and even they are, are much more straightforward in their performances, but even though they draw heavily on Talking Heads from from music standpoint. So I think what David Byrne did at the time was, let's, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Innovative. But I haven't come across someone that successfully even branches off from that or even attempts to recreate it over the course of a whole show. It's, it's truly incredible what 30-some years later. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of the time when bands really start to think in these kind of ways now about, you know, what can we do a stage show? It just, it ends up being big. Like, it just ends up being bigger and bigger. And one of the most impressive things with Stop Making Sense is just kind of how creative and fun it is without necessarily being, you know, off the charts in terms of scale. Like, there, there is nothing really over the top here. Uh, someone that I thought of because I have seen uh, some of their much more gaudy and garish attempts to, you know, I guess just engage with the idea of what is a live show and how do we do this and, you know, what's the best way to capture this is you two uh, who are famous for, you know, just the biggest, most ridiculous, like, stadium-style stages, uh, whether it's, like, when they did their 360 tour, things like this. Um, I also like uh, I thought of I saw Roger Waters on the Walter a few years ago, good few years ago now. But you tend to one that's you're really getting into the realm of big stadium rock, and that's you know like financial and budget related as much as anything. I'm sure to just be in a position where you could be like, yeah, well, I want to tell the story of the show in this way. But there's also something about that where it is just it gets very boring and insipid because of how big and mechanical and, you know, just how much steel there is, <laughs> you know, when you're there, it's just not, it's not visually interested. It's not, it's not creative in the same kind of way. And this is the thing with burn and really with talking heads more generally. I mean, they all, they all met in art school and they all have that kind of background, but burn, I mean, burn is truly just, like a rare kind of all-round artistic person when you look at what he's done in music what he's done in stage uh what he's done in film like we're not gonna talk about it here because i haven't seen it because it's basically unavailable in my part of the world right now but his film true stories which i believe is very very good like his narrative film written directed by him uh came out in 1986 so a couple of years after stop making sense 
Like, this is a guy, and even when you hear him talk, and you hear him talk about his influences, and what influences his performance style, and um, you even have, obviously, where he talks about Dadaism in American Utopia. Like, he is just very different, and very unique in terms of how gifted he is at being able to put his mind creatively to all of these different kind of mediums and different elements and kind of bring them together as he does. And it is, it's very striking. Just in something I stopped making sense. So you have the intellectual element of, okay, you know, we'll start with a bare stage. It's basically like, looks like an empty warehouse. Bare stage, just him there, as you've already mentioned, with the tape recorder and the the guitar. That's that's it. That's how we start. And then gradually we're gonna build up with the band and the sound will build up with that. And then we're gonna have these great moments where, you know, crew are coming on and off stage. Not just to, oh, here's your guitar for this song, I'm gonna take this one, I'm gonna tune this. Not just usual, you know, roadie stuff that you see at any concert but to actually construct the stage while the show is going on. So that I don't think I noticed it as much the first time I watched it as I did the second time, where you're really struck by just how in front of your eyes, the thing is being built without necessarily being distracting and how the end effect of that is something just incredibly impressive where it builds you to the point where you're like, Oh, now this is a real, real concert, you know, even choices. And I mean, these are filmmaking choices that, uh, Demi will have been essential too and I even I saw a Q&A Demi did on YouTube um, where he discussed this particular choice which is the fact that for almost the entirety of the film right up until the end we don't see any audience member once which generally in concert films that's my experience it's the thing that ruins them which is it's just constant cutaways to like singing or screaming audience members. Or this is if you see like a festival or a concert being broadcast live on TV, you just get this very cut happy style that will spend as much time on the crowd as it will on the artists themselves. And the, the quote Demi gave on this was something to the extent of like, why would I, why would I waste a camera on looking at the crowd when I've got David Byrne and talking heads on stage? You know, why would I do that? And the, the other larger point he made, which I think is interesting and probably a good place to, to really kind of dig into how this looks and the effect it has is he said, when you, when you shoot something, when you shoot a concert in the way where you're constantly looking to the crowd and you're showing the audience, oh, look how much the crowd are enjoying it. You make it about the crowd, and you make it about capturing something that you weren't at. You know, you're capturing the experience, but you're capturing it in a way where you're highlighting these people, they got the real experience. You can never get this. And you're tapping into something different mentally. You're also, you're, you know, the brain is switching off then because, you know, it's just, oh, well, I'm watching this, you know, this recording of this thing that other people really got to experience where the way that stop making sense is shot. And this generally applies to American utopia too, is it's much more focused on you are locked on the stage. Even when it comes wide, you are just seeing the width of the stage. You're barely seeing, you know, people's heads in the audience. The only time you'll see the audience is like 
if you've got an over the shoulder perspective from the stage looking out so even at that point you're still focusing more on the band than you are on the audience but i i hadn't again i hadn't kind of intellectually worked through that or engaged with that when i first watched it because i was just having fun sign that it works you know <laughs> i was able to just switch off and be like wow this is great the second time around i was able to do some more of that though and i think that's part of the reason why i was able to enjoy it so much the first time and why to kind of circle back to something we talked about at the beginning particularly in these times when this is prime example of you know the kind of experience that we're just not able to have we're not allowed to have right now there is something about how the film is constructed, how the film is shot that makes you feel like you're at a concert that is just so unlike how a concert film is usually shot, which is kind of crazy, but in its simplicity, I think Jonathan Demi really found something with Stop Making Sense. Where I really want to hone in on, because this is the truest thing you've ever said on this podcast, Adam. Uh, well, that's not true. You've said other true things, but, this is this really is an immersive experience, and I agree with you wholeheartedly that a traditional concert shot with the interspersed with the crowd and everything, just there's there is literally nothing that is ever going to replicate an in-person concert experience for me. Nothing during the pandemic. So I've been to one concert, a drive-in concert. That was as close as it was going to get. Still wasn't the same thing. But I've watched so many through live nation or whatever so many just okay the concert is virtually here to you and it's just not the same thing you don't have that same feeling it it feels like something's missing whereas here because of that focus and that craft and the way they really really focus on the people on the stage to your point it, it it is more immersive than any kind of live concert put to film that i've ever seen and it, and it gave me that sensation of 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 being at a concert in a way that nothing else can because of the way that they're generally crafted. So you're spot on there. One thing that I will say, going back to your original point, is the lack of scale is really impressive. I'm I wanted to it jogged my memory. I went to another show where I can think of people trying to do things like this. You're gonna really make fun of this one. So I so I saw Fallout Boy a few years ago. And hey, man, what's a few years ago? This is an important element of this, really. Like five or six, something mm. like that. Okay. It was like a nostalgia trip that didn't work. I thought I'd be 13 again. But they really heavily focused on pyrotechnics and additional stages in a way that felt forced. Whereas I think to David Byrne's genius, and I don't know how much Jonathan Demi was focused on this as well, Demi. I, I'm, I'm so bad with names. You, but, made, him, you made him Jack's cousin there. Uh, that, that's why I did that. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Jacques. I think the the way that he does scale and the way that he draws your eye is through human beings and then movement. The meticulously crafted and choreographed movement on the stage and the enthusiasm that everyone's showing. That's how he sucks you in. And Demi's filmmaking, obviously, highlights that intentionally, and, and it really works for me. Another thing I wanted to point out was just how tying all that back together is just how bland and sparse the stage is and how that's something that could be distracting in its own white right but it really just helps you focus i mean the the gray outfits and suits other than the turquoise uh shirt on uh france is that 
Is that who's wearing the turquoise? Yeah, um, he's definitely wearing turquoise. Yeah, you know, he had to stand out. That's probably what started the riff. But yeah, the 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 blank slate, as it were, on the stage, I think actually really does help. Well, it's it's blank until it's not, which is kind of the thing. Like it does. One of my favorite moments of favorite shots in the film is. I'm pretty sure it's near the end of This Must Be The Place when David Byrne starts to dance with the lamp and just the light from the lamp is incredible and the way it's swaying and it's kind of at that moment that you're starting to see more of a spectacle and yet it's like it's a guy dancing with a lamp like this is not high tech it's not big budget it's very simple still at that point but there is something just about it kind of starting to branch out at that point but I mean, one of the things, particularly with it being a, a Demi film, I mean, John Demi, maybe what he's most famous for in terms of his own style, his own techniques, is close-ups. Like, he's an all-time master of the close-up. And there aren't the kind of, you know, easy, frequent, logical moments where in narrative cinema, you're like, okay, this is where I'm going to go to the close-up. But there are spots in the in the film, and he certainly finds his moments for them. And particularly with Byrne, like Byrne is so expressive, particularly the back end of the film. Um, and there's so much kind of just energy in his expression, in his face, so much passion in his performance that Demi's close-ups really have the same kind of impact they have in his in his narrative features and that's something that's very interesting but i mean it's also just the kind of thing that you know you're not gonna get in most movies of this kind because you're not gonna have a director of that kind of like top tier quality um a real artist at the uh, behind the camera who's working on it now the other the other thing um talking about behind the camera I mean, Jordan Cronenweth shot this, who he shot Blade Runner. Like, he's an all time kind of great cinematographer. So, just the level of craft at the top behind that is at a very different level. Um, Byrne himself kind of designed the lighting for this, he storyboarded the lighting of how he wanted it all to look. But one of the key things when they then came in and they started to, to actually work on it and work through the early shows and that tour and then even when they first started to shoot it was okay it's one thing to have this lit how we want it to look for our concert but that's not going to come out the exact same way on film you know if we're lighting this for film and we want this to be preserved and we want the audience in theaters and ultimately the audience at home years later like us to have the experience of you know what we were doing here we've got to adjust our lighting so that we're really lighting the concert itself in a way that's designed to get the actual finished product on film looking the right way, rather than being kind of overexposed, being a bit washed out. So they had to work really hard on fine-tuning the lighting elements of the film to get it looking the way it did, to get it looking authentically like, oh, that's how a concert's lit. And again, it's just the kind of thing I can think of plenty of concert films where you see them and you're like, yeah, it is quite washed out because you've got a concert light show and it's designed for the people who are at it, where 
if you are making a film, if you're filming with the, the sole purpose of this is going to be a film, I mean, you've got to take that into consideration, particularly at that time when everyone would have been shooting on film. So it's it's kind of the, the filmmaking is masterful, but there's also lots of interesting decisions there that kind of inform the overall look and I think the impact of the film that we're still talking about all this time later. The songs themselves, and I guess the moments throughout, like what are what are the highlights or what's your favorite song or performance in Stop Making Sense? That's a, a very good question, Adam, and one I was about to pose to you, so that's, that's absolutely perfect. We're on the uh, same page. Oh, you know, as always. Well, that's not true. We discussed that last week. But anyway, uh, one thing that I'll say, and then I'll say it again during the American Utopia conversation. So, and I'll get into my relationship with Talking Heads and Vamp for a little bit. Um, I think my my favorite performance of any Talking Heads song comes from this and comes from Stop Making Sense. This version of Psycho Killer is one of my favorite songs ever i think it just gets things started off on such an incredible note and really sets you up that the show you're watching is unlike anything you've ever seen and i think it just sounds great stripped down acoustic with the drum machine in the background i think it's awesome i think the decision to let tom tom club have their moment while uh he was getting into his his big suit is is great that's that's a really good song i like uh tina weymouth's sound and then the big suit performance of Girlfriend is Better. I think one thing that really stands out to me about Stop Making Sense is the the set list is really a all killer, no filler type of set list for me. And that doesn't always happen in concerts. Now, bands that I really love, I want to hear the deep cuts. But, you know, sometimes you just want to hear them play the hits. I think this, it makes sense. It's it starts making sense uh, because this <laughs> concert, <laughs> this concert... Uh... Oh, yeah, I went for it. Uh, Jordan Tresky, that. Uh, this tour was touring on Speaking in Tongues, which is my favorite uh, Talking Heads album. I, it doesn't have my favorite song, but it's my favorite album. There's you got Burning Down the House, Making Flippy Floppy, Girlfriend is Better, Slippery People, This Must Be the Place, et cetera, et cetera. And it, the set list naturally pulls from that album a lot. And I think it's better for it. Um, I actually just bought that album on vinyl today on my lunch break. So shout out Impulse Buys brought upon by Adam making me watch things that I'll love. Um, but yeah, so Psycho Killer, Genius of Love, Girlfriend is Better uh, are my favorites. I have another favorite, but I'm going to I'm gonna save that for uh, American Utopia. Adam, thoughts? Uh, Girlfriend is Better is my favorite. I think it's just an incredible song. And it's it's perfect for, you know, that that is the song when he comes out in the giant suit. And that is the point where the whole idea behind the show and this idea of building up and building up and building up, that is where you're getting there. You know, Take Me to the River After It is also incredible, just the performance. Um, and again, how much fun everyone is having, it's clear, but like Girlfriend is Better is kind of, that's the summit for me. That's where you're really okay. The whole thing is paid off. You've got here, you've got this just absolutely killer song. Like maybe one of the best burned performances on film. That would be my pick. Very, very close. Very, very close. Uh, and what might be my favorite Talking Heads song is This Must Be The Place, which uh, it's yeah, I, there's not a whole lot to say about. I mean, it's, it's iconic. It may be the most iconic kind of performance of this in a musical sense it seems to be the one that people uh, seek out and will reference and talk about uh, it's just 
again, it's kind of perfect. So they they would be the two for me, but I think Girlfriend is Better would be my favorite. Um, in part because of, you know, it's kind of, it's completing the job. It's doing what Byrne, what Talking Heads wanted, the whole kind of the concept of the show and of the film then in this case and the build up to it. That's the point where like, you've long been completely won over and left, you know, entranced by everything they're doing. But it's at, at that point where you're like, well, this is just, you know, everything they've shot for, they've they've managed to pull it off. And that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, 100 percent. Adam, we've just passed Halloween. And now, I mean, obviously, there's a pandemic going on, so I'm not going to any costume parties. But yeah, big, I think big it's, suit, big suit is going to be forever timely i just need a haircut put on the glasses and uh from the once in a lifetime music video and i'll really have something going there and i regret not doing it sooner but maybe i'll lip sync girlfriend is better in the big suit because what might shock you guys because of how like just majestic and magical my speaking voice is i can't sing so i'll leave the singing to david byrne but big suit 2021 folks I like this uh, this idea. I think I'll have to find a way to be wherever this is happening. Hopefully the world allows that. Uh, but, you know, I don't want to miss out on Big Suit Andrew. Adam, you could have adopted me by then. So we'll see how that all plays out. <laughs> we may not need to do that. You know, we may not. Who knows? We'll see. Maybe by the end of the podcast, we'll, we'll have an answer to that. But we may not need to do that by then. The horse in the hospital has a press conference in 20 <laughs> minutes. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> Okay, let's let's switch over to American Utopia. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us and you. And that's what the show is. As people, we're a work in progress. Who we are, it extends beyond ourselves. To the connections between all of us. Okay, so American Utopia uh, released two weeks ago. I guess nearly three weeks ago now. Directed by Spike Lee. It is a modified version of the show that they have uh, been on Broadway for quite some time with. The album, um, Burns' album, American Utopia. Um, And beyond Broadway, I think it has traveled around the U.S., as well, I believe. I, I think Spike Lee first saw it in Boston, if I'm remembering reading or hearing that correctly. It did go on tour. A coworker was telling me today, they're not a Talking Heads fan, but they were telling me right before we jumped on here that they saw the American Utopia performance at Jazz Fest in New Orleans. So now I need to fight, fist fight that person out of jealousy. Continue, Adam. And they're not a fan after that? 
bizarre but entertaining was the takeaway. So I'm not a Talking Head fan. Appreciated the experience, but I think, um, obviously, you know, not everyone can get on board the way I do. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things I was thinking of with this is, this is such a... It's such a timely show, and timely has been a key word in so much of the conversation around it. And there's certainly we may end up talking politics in parts of our conversation on American Utopia and a filmmaker like Spike Lee coming in also it kind of adds that sense of urgency I do wonder what that timeliness will do to the film in the longer term like it's it's very much going to be marked by you know year very specifically not just a general sense whereas stop making sense clothes the hair you sure you go that's the 80s uh, I I think you'll go, that's 2020, just before, you know, everything fell apart. So there's there's an interesting element to that. Part of what I was thinking, though, is, like, I believed it was still on Broadway before Broadway shut. And I've got to guess it's probably done as a show now, because I would really have liked to see this live. Yeah, so I was doing some investigating into david burton live performances in whatever you know whatever guys they come right yeah exactly whatever shape that takes i knew i wanted to be there at some point and i think it was originally going to come to its conclusion naturally and planned out if i'm remembering correctly not entirely sure but then obviously things were cut short a little bit so (laughs) this is what we get it's this is a trump age show though like um, the ideas in place. I don't want to make it into something it's not by saying that because it's not. One thing that Byrne in all of his work does is he, he manages to investigate stuff without ever like just directly getting to the point where he's confronting it and he's boring you and he's hitting you over the head with it. But a lot of the concerns and then obviously there there's an element of this film which is specifically about voting. It's like, it's all very much tied to key conversations of the last four years and the last year as well. And not gonna count any chickens, but like I, I don't know if the show in the exact same form could be performed post-election. I guess it could, because it's now, it's got a new kind of, a new lease of life as well, because people will have discovered it in this particular way. And I, I think the way Byrne would certainly see it and his attitudes um, to his music and the kind of the key kind of philosophies that he likes to hold with his art, you know, they're universal. They're not to any one person, any one country also, I think is key to say like American Utopia. It may have America in the title, but I do think it is addressing a wider kind of, a wider set of issues and a shift in the world and a shift in how people behave and how they interact. And, you know, it's kind of rich in in that sense. And it is for people who haven't watched it yet. I mean, what are you doing? Watch it. Watch both of these films. You'll have a great, great time. But American Utopia has this nice mix where it is mostly a concert show. It is shot in a very different way. It's not making sense. I guess we'll get into those particular qualities uh, a little bit later. But there is this, this you know, this stage show. It is a stage show. So you get this stage show, but almost like 
almost in a kind of stand-up way. It's not like he's always cracking jokes, but there is this element of his delivery and his setups, which is a little bit different. The thing that I watched this year that it reminded me of is Beastie Boys story, which I don't know if you got a chance to check out. I have not. When it came out, I did not have Apple Plus, but now I do. So, game on. It's generally the same sort of thing, except theirs is really, the, the performance doesn't come there. You know, you're getting your music true, I guess, kind of piece together documentary around that. But the storytelling element and the kind of, okay, we're going to we're gonna talk our way through this particular issue or idea or whatever it might be. And then we're going to lead into this. Like construction wise, there was there was an element of it that reminded me to that. So it's it's very engaging on that front because even when you're getting some of the like the really David Byrne, you know like his performance style, the thing that you're you're quoting your coworker and the referring to as absurd, his performance style, he has certainly certain he has certainly leaned into that element he's become very comfortable on that as a as a public figure and as a persona he's become much more open and i guess like much more quote-unquote normal in terms of how people engage with him and view him and yet when he goes on stage there is this sense where he just seems so much freer to fully explore those kind of weirder elements of himself as a performer than he necessarily did when he was in talking heads yeah, there's like uh, in interviews now. There's a smoothness to him. It's like he's a cool Mister Rogers, is the way I would describe. Yeah, it. yeah. Well, look, uh, I think there's a there's one thing that's worth mentioning on that, and even I guess it's some of how I was talking about him earlier, which is like he's been open. He's had issues with like anxiety, and he hasn't always been the most confident or comfortable person in social situations. So, not the not the most natural fit of a job like and a kind of particularly to get to the kind of profile he did and that's not easy so it's undoubtedly taken him some time to get to the point where he is that cool confident kind of figure that he is now that uh performative stand-up comedy slash uh political statement aspect of american utopia is really what takes it above stop making sense for me now we're splitting hairs here i love both of these if if there's some sort of way i can get my hand on physical copies because i'm an insane person and just i've got i got myself the physical copy stop making sense so there's no problem on that perfect so that'll be easy i'll get that done we'll see if i can't have utopia will follow i'm sure it will if i can't have american utopia too it's gonna trigger my ocd and anxiety so that can't happen but yeah, that aspect of it is really what takes it over the top for me because, to your point, this isn't just a 2020 concert film one-man show down to the year. It's down to the month, down to the day, down to the hour, down to the minute as we're having this conversation. And I think it's going to resonate way beyond 2020 because such a large degree of the United States voting population has doubled down on an ideology that I want no part of. And so the things that they're t- he's talking about in terms of voting and engagement with young people voting in particular and police brutality and that sort of thing, I think that's going to resonate for the next 20, 30 years. Hopefully, hopefully we come to a place in this country where it doesn't have to resonate so strongly and it becomes something that's so in the past that people that would view it can't even understand that that's where we came from. But just where we are in this country and even with things trending in a direction that – 
I am a little more happy with. I think this is going to be earmarked in time for 2020 and October 2020, November 2020, whatever you, whatever it may be. But I think it's something that, like you said, especially with when it came out and everything happening, I think it's it's going to resonate for years to come. And a large degree of that is because of the extra step he took into having something to say and the, the format that allowed him to do that. Yeah, you know what? I think that's that's a very good way of putting it. It's it may not be a historical document, but it'll be a cultural document of this time. And your your point is well taken. I guess I hadn't quite thought it true in that way, but for better or worse, like regardless of what comes next, this will be something that people will be able to look back to. And as I said, it will be time stamped by twenty twenty, but that can be a good thing too. Um, in terms of you know if things if things improve as we hope they will in so many elements it's there and it's it's kind of it's a record of people reckoning with the issues of the time and it's evidence of you know the ideas that i think it, it will be hard for anyone to dispute are very much welcome in this time this kind of sense of collectiveness this kind of this really kind of global worldview, like it's not a mistake. I'm going to say it's not a mistake. I'm not saying it's calculated either, but it's certainly, it's just reflective. I think of who Byrne is that his band, as he highlights and kind of makes a point of in the show are from all over the world. And you've got this kind of great mix of different nationalities, different races, mix of gender you've got all of this kind of coming together in a way where you know it's the idealized version of what you know 2020 should be now i did see one article i won't even say name this this site because it was just it was a clickbaity kind of criticism of this sense and of this idea being so so old-fashioned which I have issues with it because I, I think there is just a an inherent goodness and more than anything, just a kind of a willingness and an intent to listen, to understand, to kind of reach out and engage with each other in this particular film and in, you know, most burn appearances now. Like this is this has become his character. Um if we if we want to kind of separate it from maybe who he may be day to day as a person or who he was in the past. This is certainly the character that we now know as David Byrne. And on that front, I mean, I don't see what is bad about that. I don't see what can be bad about that. The film isn't going out of its way to politicize itself. It's a reflection of the time we live in that, you know, memorializing people who were murdered by police or just generally kind of discussing the notion of, you know, the need to be kind to each other, the need to engage, to interact, that those kind of conversation points can become something that is political. Like that, that says something about how far everything has spiraled, which is, it's kind of, it's interesting. And that will, I guess, in the, the longer term will also be an interesting element. Like, is it something that when we are looking back at it, when people do look back at it, that 
as you said, they won't be able to recognize or identify, or do things get worse? <laughs> do things get worse? And this is something where people say, well, you know, that kind of ideology or that kind of attitude um, was just not something that wider populations were interested or, you know, open to living their life with or to engaging with. And it, it's kind of past the point. It's very, it's very non-internet age, this film. That's, that's one thing I will say about it. It's very much, I think that's part of why it's such a joyous experience and you can just watch it and like, in spite of some of the ideas it's engaging with, you can largely watch it with a smile and let it move you. It's because it's so detached from just the very toxic world we live in, in an online sense, in spite of how engaged and interested it is in kind of wider what is society in 2020 what does it mean to be a human i mean one of the things he comes back to over and over again is this idea you know there's there's no better sight than you know another person's face like it's it's very much these kind of old-fashioned ideas of of engagement but it is it is so detached from uh the kind of the keyboard warrior space that so much of our life is now lived in particularly as we can't go places um that that is Something I think stands to it and is also very refreshing. I haven't read this clickbaity article, but I'm assuming it's in the tenor of, oh, we need to be fighting now. This togetherness nonsense is. No, it's, 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 I'll, I'll find out a link to you. It's not like this is not from like Variety or uh, the New York Times or it, like this is a, this is a very kind of hardcore film publication. Okay. Um, that's come out with a very strange take that everyone, from the moment it went up, it was like, what? I mean, who's seeing this and thinking like this? Uh, it's I'm not for a second suggesting that's a widely held view of this film, but I do think the fact that anyone is thinking that, or that anyone is even to be provocative, like that's the, the view they're taking, is reflective of, you know, just where we are and how, how far things have gone. Yeah, because I, I think this is something that walks both of those lines very well and the 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 way that it does showcase togetherness and is you know it's it's a very kind and and warm performance but it's it doesn't shy away from the controversy that we were talking about i mean the thing you reference so when he covers uh hell you talking about which is a janelle monet song from 2015 mm-hmm. it was the most depressing thing that i learned uh through this whole process is that of the song that comes out five years ago and you could add so many more names to that list and th- that was probably the most uh, well, moving part of me quick watching story this. quick story on that i watched the the q a that um spike lee and david byrne did for for tiff this was the opening night film at the toronto international film festival and spike lee was talking about how in the build-up to the build up to filming this and while they were working through the process, he would once a week, at least he would go see the show. So he was seeing the show over and over again, he go see the show and then him and burn would talk. And he said, it became a thing. This is not an exaggeration. It's very literal where every week he'd go see the show. And he would say to David Byrne, did you see, you know, insert whatever, like countless names here. So, each week there'd be a new name that they could add to that. 
each week there was another person. And that was something that they talked about in the process of, you know, every night burn and his band and all of the performers, they're going out and they're performing that. And they could, you know, throughout the run of the show, they could continue to just, okay, we're going to add this name this time, or we're going to just, just it, that element of it is incredibly depressing. Although it's a roll call and it's, it's actually, it's very touching in a way that isn't just, you know, it's not making anything political out of that as much as, you know, remembering the people and reminding everyone that these are people and kind of digging through just any noise that surrounds, you know, the who did what of that and narrowing in on the humanity of it and being like, you know, this is, this is someone's son or daughter or husband or wife or brother or sister. And there are, in some of the cases there, we see like uh, multiple victims, mothers, I think generally holding up, photos of whoever it was they lost after their their name has been called out in that performance which is just incredibly moving and i believe that was something um specifically that spike lee kind of brought to it in some of the the victims family members that he knew he reached out to and that was something he did kind of separate to even any ideas that Byrne had and what they were doing in the show but like i mean that is that is an incredibly powerful sequence and it is the one that in so many ways everyone will remember from it and it's maybe the one that most particularly with how you know just how tragic and horrible this year has been in terms of incidents of police brutality and then the widespread protests and the reaction that we saw to that earlier in the year like that is one of the moments where it really hits home you know when this is and what it is but your point is true it's that's you know i think David Byrne first saw that performed. Was it the, it was the Women's March, which was like in DC, to like twenty seventeen. Yeah, Field? yeah, I think that was a right around something like that. Inauguration he, day. Yeah, yeah, he saw Janelle Monae perform it then, which I mean, he he relays that element of the story in the film itself. Yeah, and it, it's the most powerful sequence in American Utopia for me and in a film performance or whatever that has a number of different talking points. I mean, I've to get a little personal, I'm I'm someone that's not very overt with my political opinions online. Just because if 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 it gets started, if it starts going down, I'm gonna say something that gets me canceled. Uh within like certain subsets of of family members or that sort of thing or something that is so profane and and personal in my attack yeah, of that particular I'm person gonna, i'm gonna i'm gonna i interrupt you because the way you're you first put that is i think you're mischaracterizing yourself from what i know of these interactions and what you've told me it's not that you will you will get so annoyed that you'll you'll end up in the realm of the personal in an argument over politics is maybe more than it's not your political opinion that's getting you cancelled it's the difference in opinion right would be the way to put it uh not necessarily the difference in opinion because the reaction to the difference of opinion just how vitriolic i get with my response and say things i can't unsay um and i just don't want those problems and i don't want to you know get into keyboard warrior arguments but so many of my political opinions that are tied directly to this particular song and performance and things they're saying 
aren't things that should be political. And watching that se- watching that sequence last night, it's made me <laughs> rethink my whole policy. It's it's to the point where it's like, okay, like where do we go from here? I I typically make my impact with voting and with my wallet right now until i until another unemployment string hits me but that's that's a story for another day that's how i do it not necessarily getting into fights with dumb ants on facebook but (laughs) it it might be the time jordan snyder can't get away from a podcast episode without a reference to him just because you know you know how it is but yeah we we might have reached our breaking point and mine apparently was american utopia (laughs) i find that interesting because Byrne himself, uh, I do think him and Spike Lee definitely differ slightly on this. Um, where like Spike Lee is, I mean, one of the most overtly political American filmmakers ever. Just you know, there's no doubt about that, and there is no mistaking you know what a a Spike Lee movie, a Spike Lee joint is, and the perspective that he brings that. And this is before we even get into kind of technical elements. I think this is a perfect marriage of filmmaker and subject. I think, and for the time, like this is this is just a perfect coming together, and it delivered something really special. But Byrne views that performance specifically as something completely like apolitical, and he and his intent behind it is this is you know this is taking all of those other layers away, like just park all of that other stuff. We're not. There is nothing else being mentioned, and it's the, it's the thing that I think is really striking, and it's certainly it's what he has cited as well as what he found so, you know, impactful when he heard Janelle Monae perform that song first is just the simplicity. Like I mean, it's not, it's it's just it's mostly the names. Like that is that is what you're doing. It's call and response. It's mostly the names, and it is not. It's not a song that's you know it's getting into talking about it doesn't engage with the fact of, you know, what has happened to these people in terms of that is not the point it's looking to make. The sole point it's trying to make is, you know, you know what's happened to these people. Now what we can do is not forget them. And yeah, it is crazy that there is, you know, there is a subsection, not necessarily the smallest subsection necessarily that will view that as political. But I do think in how it's handled in the movie is very, it it is handled as just, this is like a a human issue. This is just, you know, we're talking about people that, that is what he wanted to get across. And I think he successfully does that. I do understand though, why for you and I'm sure many others, it's like red rag to a bull because it's bringing, it's bringing to a head the the other the feelings and the the conversation that does generally surround it, and that's an entirely different thing. And also, I mean, I'll say I don't think you're, I don't find anything about how you you deal with politics and obviously particularly the last few years online, um, or the kind of vitriol. You feel. I don't find any of that unusual. I. I don't know how I would have dealt with that in your shoes and in the shoes of countless others. I don't think I would have dealt with it well, and I would certainly be ready to fight every single person, you know? So I I think there is something to, like, that's a natural response. Yeah, I think it it is. But uh, and just the constant if you're if you're sorry, but if you're like, it's a natural response 
I, I don't want to get into the kind of language that sets this in a different way where we both just, you know, unloading this vitriol anyway. But it's like, that is a sequence where you will get angry if people being unlawfully murdered, largely because of the color of their skin, is something that upsets you. And if it doesn't, well, then you're an entirely different person. But, like, that is, that's the kind of element. And that is, again, that, like, at its most basic element. And it's it's what I'd like to think on so many different things that have become politicized, and not just in the US, around the world in recent years. It's not just, like, that is, it's boiled down to what it is. And its most basic description, what happened, what it is. And it becomes just about, like, where's your humanity? <laughs> where's your humanity? And how do you respond to that, knowing that's another person? Yeah, that's that's exactly it, and we'll <laughs> we'll get back to the American Utopia, but this is obviously important. It's just a, a large degree of it is just misinformation, and people not understanding the why, and refusing to educate themselves. And I appreciate David Byrne, Janelle Monae in particular, obviously for writing the song and trying to humanize it and just make it about people and not some article your aunt shared on Facebook that some conspiracy theory or some statistic about crime. Like, it's... I don't know. It's just exhausting. But <laughs> I guess... uh Yeah, at some point, Adam, we're friends on Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg's Death Machine, um, <laughs> which will be relevant later, folks. That's what we call in the business a tease. So at some point, you might see something come across your screen. Andrew commented on... Oh, I can't wait. Uh, I, I should I'm, put I'm gonna, notifications on. I'm going to say the name. Uh, she's an absolute dipshit. You can leave this in here. Um, I'm going to censor this. <laughs> no, you don't have to. But you'll see me comment on one of her posts. And then you'll know that, like, Andrew is the butterfly coming out of the cocoon. And it'll be all downhill from there. Uh, okay. Um, that day will come. And uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I, part of this, look, I know this is not the kind of conversation that we generally have, but part of the reason I did pick this week, and particularly like knowing what day we we're going to record and everything, and I picked this, these two movies, is one, like, there's, there's this interesting combination of, oh, they're a lot of fun, and they're highly entertaining, and they're great escapism, which you actually, you, you had that experience. Like, American Utopia was that for you on... Wednesday night? Uh, last night. Yeah, yes. yeah, Wednesday night. So that's one of them. But the other part is American Utopia engages with certain things that are very much timely now. And they're, they're conversations that I think are worth having. And particularly if you're going to talk about the film, I think it would be disingenuous to just ignore them. Like it, it is a core part of why Spike Lee is involved with that movie. It's a core part of why David Byrne uh, wanted to do that particular stage show and it's also i mean like there's just a lot of really interesting ideas in the songs themselves i had not listened to the album american utopia before this but he he is interested and even kind of beyond beyond those uh those kind of flashpoint issues for some people there's a lot of other kind of just modern life elements that i think are really interesting in in the show and in the songs i should watch tv which is from the album he did with saint vincent i'm pretty sure i love that performance it's not like it's one of my favorite performances but i i just love the 
I love how it's framed. I love how the stage is being used in that particular instance. But then also the ideas it's playing with, I think, are really interesting. And then even more so in terms of some of the wider, the wider talking points, some of the things we've already got into, and just the ideas of you know what TV has done to us, um, and what I guess we maybe once thought TV was compared to what it is now. Like I just, there's a lot of really interesting across his discography, and like this is pulling from all kinds of eras and areas of his career to put this show together which is kind of amazing like and and how well that works that he can have a show that is kind of it's so well taught true in terms of the point it's making and what exactly it's looking to address and yet at the same time it's not like 20 songs that are being written especially for the show Oh, I agree with everything you say there. That's that's one of the things that stood out to me because as we t- as we talked about stop making sense, it's a mostly looking back on it now, it basically Talking Heads greatest hits and this does a great job of kind of patching everything together from David Byrne's career. I had not heard Lazy in a number of years. Oh, uh, that is that is such a song. Also, how weird and fun is Toe Jam? Like Totem is great. It's amazing. It's it's so good. I mean I was like Fat Boy Slim and Dizzy Rascal, I'm pretty sure. You collaborated with for that. It is there's a lot going on throughout this set list, and that's another reason that it's slightly above Stop Making Sense for me. Uh it's a harder thing to make work too, <laughs> just because of kind of the differences, but they find it find a way to make it all work together with the the wireless instrumentation that's going on, which is another thing that is incredible and, and visually striking about this. I, I wanted to call out my, this is my favorite version of a talking head song that I've ever heard. I don't know if it was just the mood I was in last night with everything that's going on or just the way it all comes together. But this performance of once in a lifetime with the, the massive, band and just the exuberance and enthusiasm that david byrne is bringing to a song he's sung a million times Mm -hmm. for some for some reason it was like hearing it all for the first time and and it's just truly incredible so you do have that nice mix of important commentary on life and then obviously what we talked about (laughs) for quite a bit with hell you talking about but it's also just such a joyous experience hearing these songs that define david burns life and take you from a to z but kind of in a zigzag <laughs> zigzag uh, pattern and introduce you to new songs from the album which i had not had much time with until this week to be honest with you everybody's coming to my house love that song right. now after hearing it and it's just yeah it's it, it truly is i mean we've had our mid-year checkpoint of what movies we like during the year and it, it's just going to be so tough for anything to top American Utopia for me, just because of everything it's doing and, and and how it ties together so nicely with all those different elements. It's important, and it's also just a great way to spend almost two hours on a Wednesday night during election season. Yeah, uh, the Once in a Lifetime performance, uh, you you hit on something really important there, which is the idea. And I mean, how many bands like or artists, particularly at this stage of their career, like their burn is not a young man. He is... 68 years of age he has performed that song as you said like god knows how many times and so often you go to see an act like that that has like such an iconic song and 
it can be one of the most disappointing elements of seeing them live because it's kind of dialed in and I get it, but how could you possibly carry the same kind of enthusiasm and vigor for something that you've done thousands and thousands of times? I think an interesting thing with music is the idea that something like Once in a Lifetime, for what it started as and from him conceiving of the song, from him writing the song with Talking Heads, although I have no idea what way the credits went on that one. Uh, if that was an element of contention or not, but you know, I'll just I'll say with Talking Heads. Adam, Remain in Light's gonna be a uh, lunch time purchase for me tomorrow, so I'll I'll read the liner notes and get back to you. I like I just I'm just being careful in case Chris Rance or Tina Weyman are listening, but there it's just it's it's kind of it blows me away that he managed to bring that kind of energy. It's just like he seems really young performing that is the thing too like it's just he seems completely reinvigorated by performing that particular song and what i was getting at a second ago is you know that's a song that it's not his anymore it's people's you know it's it's the fans that's one of the the grade a examples of you know oh the cliche of yeah once once the song is out there and no longer belongs to me like, that's the kind of, like, big hit where it really doesn't belong to him. And that can really grind an artist down to the point where they're like, I just don't want to play that. And you have to play it and to play it and play it like that and to have it carry the way it does is incredible. And for me, I, I love that. Like, for me, that song and specifically the video for that song, uh, that was my introduction to the Talking, to talking Heads. Like, ugh, I don't know. 14, 15 years ago at, at MTV2 and they had a, a rock channel here called MTV2 that I really loved and very important to me in lots of ways. I think as a teenager, uh, I saw that video and was blown away. And to this day, I'd be like, yeah, that might be the best music video of all time. But that was my introduction to Talking Heads. That was my introduction to David Byrne. And then to see him perform it, as you said, make it feel new and make it clear just how much he cares and how much he feels for that song still is kind of amazing for me i i love lazy i mean lazy might be lazy might be the one where if i was to fire up just if if i was you were to go oh just pick any kind of if i had this on blu-ray and i was like scene selection just pick one there which one do you want lazy might be the one i go to born under punches though and the introduction of the whole band is amazing it's really amazing because it does tie into a lot of the wider ideas he has in terms of, you know, community and collaboration. And I mentioned it earlier, something that happens in this film and it's a credit to, uh, to Spike Lee and to the cinematographer, Alan Curris, which is just how, just how you get to know all of these faces. You get to know his band in a way that, particularly like this isn't talking heads it's like so many other artists doing something like this the camera would not be on all of these other figures in the band kind of uh backing vocalists dancers the various percussionists you know but everyone gets their share of screen time here and one of the things that's striking is just like the wide smiles on people's faces throughout but there is something really again just kind of you know, kind of punch the air about him introducing the band. You're getting all of the different places they're from, but he's also 
he's engaging with the idea behind Stop Making Sense. You're having the whole idea is he wants to show you the song built up from nothing to the whole band together. And something in that QA from Tiff, I think it was. I don't know. I've read and listened to a few things, so maybe I've forgotten exactly where it was. But one of the things he talked about that kind of blew me away, and I was like, wow, they actually pull that off, and that's one of the things that makes the film. He talked about the idea of let me see. So you've got one, two, three, four, five, six. You've got seven primarily percussionists in this in this kind of this group performing with him, right? They are basically a drum kit. And his idea was I just want the drums to be played here. But I want them all played, all of the different elements individually. I want it to come together. And the idea is to get those a group of people to combine to give us that kind of singular effect and to sound like you know one person playing the drums and they successfully do that and that that kind of speaks to i think so much of what this film is looking to do and also to the way that david burns brain works in a creative sense and in how do i build a performance that's interesting you know, how do I get to a place where I am not bored by my own songs and bored by doing this over and over again, like I've been doing for the last, you know, 40 plus years of my life. And like from top to bottom, the, the performers in his band with him and this are incredible, uh, extremely accomplished musicians, singers, dancers. And it's unlike anything you've ever seen. And it really hooks you in for just the the entire variety of performance elements like you mentioned the fact that all playing wireless instruments so there is this freedom of movement and it allows this kind of wider choreography beyond the dance and it really makes it a visual experience again we're talking about you know how do you make it a film you make it a film because they're, they're all free to move and the camera is then free to move between them because it's not worrying about you know um well you know, the guitarist can only come to this point or it, it changes the dynamic entirely and it makes the whole experience so much more immersive. And I, I think it really allows Spike Lee to thrive. There's some incredible framing in this film. And it comes from the fact that like you can go and you can have a close up on burn, but then you have so much going on around it and you've got so much movement at all times that it's it's never still, it's never flat. It's a really dynamic film to look at. Yep, agree wholeheartedly. Sorry, Adam, I'm just I got distracted briefly because the elephant is giving a press conference. Um, so where do we need to center me back to get this train rolling? I apologize. <laughs> uh, I I don't really know how much else we've we've got here. Have you have you got any final thoughts? Yeah, I do. I do have some final thoughts. This is something we probably should have talked about in the beginning, but I, I kind of briefly want to dig into just our relationship with Talking Heads and the the unique things that movies and music in particular offer people that no other form of entertainment can. Um, like, for example, Adam, you know I'm a big Liverpool supporter. I really enjoyed the the pandemic title. But I can't go and experience their success in the 80s or the 90s because I didn't live it. I didn't live it. I wasn't there. But 
the thing about film and music in particular is there's an endless treasure trove of artists, filmmakers, actors that we can discover years after the fact. And Talking Heads is, a, and David Byrne is that for me. I probably first became familiar with Talking Heads late in high school, early college. So we're getting into 10, 15 years ago, that sort of thing. And honestly, they're a band that I didn't really get back into until you suggest that I watch Stop Making Sense. And then I really dove deep back in and re-familiarized myself with songs that I loved, discovered songs that I'd either forgotten about or hadn't gotten to the first time. And just that, that ability to rediscover something that's old to the world but new to you is amazing. And then tie that all together and put it in two of the best concert films of all time. And it's truly incredible. I hope that Talking Heads and David Byrne are artists that people continue to discover and rediscover as these things exist and are more widely accessible. So this has just been an exercise that's brought me so much happiness (laughs) in a very weird time and has led to Talking Heads in the year 2020 being something that's up there on my daily playlist rotation. If I'm in a bad mood, making coffee in the morning, getting ready for work, going on a run, whatever it is, a talking head song is probably going to come up on my shuffle on Spotify because I got the chance to rediscover them because of Stop Making Sense and because of American Utopia. And that's just such a great thing that, that means a lot to me. Likewise for me, my relationship with his music, with talking heads music is going to be kind of deeper forever because of both of these films and because of seeing them and the additional context it gives for them, but just really part of it too. I mean, we've talked about so much of, you know, how it translates to screen and how it's captured, but also there are just so many unbelievable songs, like an incredible, incredible musician. And I guess first and foremost, maybe that's the thing that anyone entering into this should know because you're hearing us talk about concert films and like just that element of it alone delivers. And the thing with David Byrne is that's only the starting point and that's what makes him so special. Okay, Andrew, this has been a lot of fun next week. We're continuing to just, you know, swing back and forth between, you know, light and dark, light and dark. <laughs> you, pretty, you, you guessed really it. Really pronounced next- ways. You guessed it. Next week, we're going with The Dance by Fleetwood Mac (laughs) concert. (laughs) Uh, Next week, we are going to get ahead of the game a little bit, and we are going to talk about David Fincher. We're going to go back through David Fincher's filmography. Uh, Up until this point, we will be revisiting Fincher next month when Mank comes out, and we'll, we'll talk specifically about Mank. But before that, it is probably worthwhile taking a trip back down Fincher Lane and uh, talking about a lot of the good stuff that's in there. So we'll talk about some of our, our favorite Fincher movies. Are you looking forward to that, Andrew? Very much so. It's made me kind of reevaluate some letterbox rankings that I've had because it reminded me of of, of films that might give the current uh, frontrunners run for their money. So I'm very excited to dig into Fincher and quite possibly a top three movie of all time for me. Okay, I'm very excited for that. If you want to hear that and you want to hear all of our episodes, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, 
or really wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we are everywhere. I always say this. I'm pretty confident we're on about every podcast platform we can be. If you're somewhere we're not, you can always let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at Captured and Cell or on Facebook at Captured and Celluloid. And Andrew and I are both on Twitter as well. Maybe after this episode in particular, so people may want to reach out to us. I don't know. Um, I won't give our handles, but we are there. So you can find us. You can find us on Letterboxd too if you want to follow us there. I just had a great tweet, Biden 253, Trump 213, Fetty Wap 1738. So that's the kind of content you can you can believe in if, if you follow me. Well, until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> <laughs>